Hello and welcome to Brain Problems, the podcast about uh, problems with your brain and brainy problems and uh, brain chemistry and fun. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brennan and board games are a thing of the past. We're just talking with the brain. <laughs> this is actually going to be a very brain focused episode. Why is that? A to the J. We're talking about brain chemistry, the feel-good chemicals in your brain, and how they relate to board games. And we're following up from our previous episode that we recorded an entire last year ago. (laughs) So if you didn't listen to that, we will do a bit of a recap, but it was a good episode. So go back and listen to it if you didn't. Yeah, recommended. We got some some nice notes about that one. Yeah. Oh, speaking of nice notes, let's let's lead off with the Discord. Our Discord has been a hoppin' boppin' place of hoopy fruits and cool cats. Hoopy fruits and cool cats? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you want to be a hoopy fruit and or a cool cat, uh, then come join the Discord. How can they find us, AJ? They can find us by clicking the link that I'm going to put in the show notes. Yeah. And then you'll be in our Discord. If you haven't used Discord before, there'll be a channel. It's got all of the Jelly Bean Games various channels in there, but it's also going to have the Fun Problems one specifically. So just click the Fun Problems one and there'll be a text channel there and you can chat with everybody who's already there. Yeah, like me. On that, everyone there and Peter. (laughs) On that note, I'm going to try streaming on Discord for the first time ever. I am going to make a new voice channel in that same Discord section there. And on 25th of February, 2022, from 7 to 9 p.m. EST, I'm going to stream a video game called Inscription which is a very board game style game, but it's digital. And I'm just going to talk design about it. And if you want to talk about that or just chat with me, you can hop on there. It'll be full public access. It's not like Twitch. Everyone can just hop in the voice channel and chat. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. Should be good times. Mm -hmm. We'll see how it goes. If it's popular, maybe we'll do it again. Yeah. Uh, What what kind of stuff have we been talking about in the Discord? What's, What's been your favorite conversation we've had there? Ooh, good question. There was a discussion about... uh, Try not to have any fun in this question. This is not the fun part of the podcast. (laughs) This is the miserable question. Yeah. (laughs) My favorite one was the discussion of the differences between Mancala's and Rondell's and other very similar mechanics. It had me thinking about them in a way I hadn't thought of before, which is interesting. Hooray. A lot of this episode's content about brain chemistry comes from conversations you've had with your friend who, if I'm understanding correctly, is actually a brain. Is that correct? (laughs) it's a combination of research i've done on my own me showing the research to my friend who is a psych major almost graduated now maybe graduated now i don't know how covid has messed up the scheduling of things and then he will like tell me you know yes you're on the right track here no you're kind of missing the mark here send me some articles i'll read that back so it's been a back and forth conversation with him and i i thought i had everything nailed and after a bunch of conversations we recorded the episode and i got him to listen to the episode and I've got some notes from, from him about details I got wrong. <laughs> so your friend has, since we recorded the first one, if I'm remembering correctly, listened to the first one and had some corrections. <laughs> yeah, I was really worried because I don't remember if I said this on air or not on one of the in-between episodes. But when he listened to it, he was like, yeah, so you got a few things wrong. And he sent me like a wall of articles and videos. <laughs> and, and I was really nervous. I was like, oh, man, do I have to like delete the episode? But actually, I got pretty close. The corrections are minor. And mostly what we're doing is we're just doing a bit of clarification. But all the broad points that I made there are accurate. Particularly, he said, the examples in relation to board games. He said the way that we were discussing how to use them in relation to board games, he said that was mostly spot on. So don't worry, it's still valid, but we do have some corrections to make. Let's dive right into it. Yeah, so first, I just want to do a very quick recap of what we discussed um, and, and sort of, 
after I re-listened to it, I had a bit of a cleaner way of breaking down dopamine. So there's three main functions that dopamine is going to serve in your system. It will serve as anticipation, it will serve as building neural pathways, and it serves as surprise, which my friend describes as reward prediction error as a little bit more of a clinical and accurate uh, term. Reward prediction error? Yes, as in you think you're going to get X reward, the reward that you actually get deviates from that, and that discrepancy is the thing that generates dopamine because your brain's like, why was my mental model wrong? Why did I think I was going to get X result, but I got Y result? So it's not necessarily surprise in general. It's when you had like this idea in mind of what you were going to get as a positive or negative outcome, and it ended up being substantially different from that. Sort of like the scientific process, basically. Yeah, yeah, you're on the right track, yeah. Gotcha. And as per usual, the bigger the surprise, the bigger the discrepancy, the more dopamine is released, which is why, of course, you get that crazy 1 in 20 natural D20 roll. That's going to be really exciting, that really clutch moment, because it was only a 5% chance, right? And because it was so unlikely, your brain basically wrote it off as like not going to happen, and that happened. Big moment. Or that moment in Barbara and You, where you're like, ah, I finally worked out how this mechanism works. You spend, you know, five minutes setting it all up, and then you make that final move, and it doesn't work, and you're just like... What? Why? What did I do? Oh, oh, that that sort of. Uh... Yeah, it can be. Now, in a lot of situations, you could have a similar thing where it's like you think it works and it doesn't. And you just become frustrated because there's there's no sort of no next. Feedback. Yeah, exactly. And feedback is the really key thing here. Yeah, I was actually testing a game recently where we ran into exactly that. I tried three or four different versions of this game. And the feedback just kept coming back the same. They were like, these mechanics are clever and clean and interesting. And I play the game and I just don't know how to get what I want. And mm-hmm. no matter what I do, and, and one player had played, I think, three times, was like, at the end of the third game, I'm still no closer to working out like how to actually accomplish my goals. Mm-hmm. One really big thing that makes games fun is having a clear goal and being able to make clear progress towards the goal that's something that's very difficult to do in a lot of cases in real life and something that games are really really good at being able to do yeah and when you have a game that doesn't offer you that clear direction it can be very disjointed yeah it's the reason i always 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 advocate especially in big heavy euros give them a starting goal like it doesn't even matter what it is just be like hey there's so many mechanisms here to work out how they interlock you know you're not going to be able to work out how to get the final end game victory points so just try to do this thing whether it's, you know, in, in Cartouche, get two red tokens or create this shape on your board. Just anything that is like, okay, cool. Like start the game and just work towards this and you'll at least, you know, have, have a direction to start with. Yeah, it might be paradoxical, but it, it makes sense. Like the more open your game is, the more you want to have some degree of direction because otherwise the players can be overwhelmed. Yeah. I actually had this problem in a game that you really like. So I'm curious to discuss it on air. Western Legends. I was, I was literally about to raise Western Legends as the example for you specifically. <laughs> <laughs> we just know each other. We just we do. know each other, <laughs> Alistair. We just know each other so well. We aren't quite at finishing each other's sentences. So Brent still got a little bit on you. but uh we'll we'll work on it brent's the name of uh, aj's husband for people who don't know (laughs) close enough (laughs) so yeah with western legends it's interesting because the first chunk of the game is completely open you can do anything you want and there's not really any direction past you know general board positioning stuff which can be a little overwhelming to newer players but then partway i'll correct you in that there is one very minor thing which is every player has a unique player power that unlocks once you get to five victory points 
So you basically want to rush to five victory points as quickly as possible. Right, so that was my point, is you don't... It's not a very clean direction. The direction is try to win the game, but fast. But it is at least something. Right. It gives you a short-term goal. Where I was going with that actually was I would have wanted it reversed. So I would have wanted like, you start with a player power, so you're extra good at mining off the bat. And you're like, okay, I'm just going to mine for a couple turns. And then very quickly, okay, now you've got a more open-ended power. Yeah. I see what you're saying, which is interesting. But to me, it's like saying get five victory points and there's 50 different ways to get victory points doesn't give me the direction. Whereas having a power that like focuses me would. No, absolutely. Yeah. Going through those uh, three main things that dopamine does really quickly, VP, like we mentioned in the previous episode, are little dopamine hits. Why is that? It's because those are tangible progress towards your goal. Every time you get a victory point, it's like, I know that I have done the right thing. I know that I'm closer to accomplishing my goal of winning the game. It's feedback. It's direct feedback. Exactly. And it's like XP bars in a video game. You get to see your progress working closer and closer to that thing. It feels really good, and it means that your brain says, yes, I am locking this in. I know this is going well. And that's feedback that helps you to build those neural pathways that we were talking about. We're not going to go into more than that for the neural pathways because we already talked about that. Anticipation, not just surprise, and not just (laughs) anticipation, but surprise. Those are both important things. When you see that you're getting closer to the goal, that's the anticipation buildup. And the bigger the difference between your expected reward and your actual reward, the bigger the dopamine hit there. The last thing is just to talk about the neural pathways. You don't just want feedback to say you did the right thing, but you want to make it so that the game builds neural pathways to want to do the same thing over and over again. When I do X and do Y, that's a good combo. That's a good set of things to do. And then your neurons are going to fire as a cluster. If you do any of those actions, it's going to be like, oh, I remember doing this thing that felt good. And then that helps you to get used to the game, get comfortable with it, and then you can explore deeper levels of play. Okay, so in terms of things that my friend wanted to correct me on, again, he said overall that the board game examples were accurate. He said the more I got outside of that with abstract examples, like my example of the way that the slug's brain works and ADD, the more I did that, the more oversimplified I was going. And we did flag that I was oversimplifying. Yeah, yeah. You have to, as a communicator, you have to simplify. You can't give the full nuance of everything. Yeah. CGP Gray talks about this a lot because he does these amazing like five minute summaries of complex topics. And he sends them off to experts and the experts always come back with like, look, it's not, it's not exactly a hundred percent accurate. He's like, but is it wrong? They're like, well, it's not wrong, but you have missed the button. He's like, yeah, I can't put everything into every single video or else they wouldn't be five minute summaries anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And so the big takeaway here is the illustrated points were correct, but please do not refer to those as anything in your psych papers. <laughs> don't, don't, put, don't put those on your exams. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, This also comes with some bad news, which is that your new podcast, Slug Problems, has now been (laughs) cancelled. Dang it. (laughs) The Slug apparently had some very controversial tweets in the early 2000s and it has been (laughs) cancelled. One thing that my friend wanted to point out in terms of the way I was talking about brains in abstract is that neuroimaging, which is a thing that he's spent a lot of time on, shows that brains are actually very different on very fundamental levels. So while we can talk about these broad principles, big surprise to everyone, Humans are complicated. Yeah. And this is something we talk about often. We're never telling you this is a hard and fast thing. Always do this and it will always provide the best possible result. Right. You have target demographics and you're trying to do different things for different audiences. And every rule that you have comes with a cost. Sometimes it's worth it. Sometimes it's not. Yeah. But one interesting thing that he said was that this is a little tangenty, but I think it's so interesting. He said that neurotypical brains are actually more different than people with atypical brains. Do you mean different to each other? Yeah, so like the neurotypical brains are less similar to each other, to other neurotypical brains. 
than atypical brains are to each other. So you could have like two atypical brains that are atypical in very different ways, but they actually look much similar in terms of how they operate. Oh, really? That's right? Interesting. That is so interesting. Yeah. So I, I didn't dig deep on this, but apparently it has to do with how like if your brain is working quote unquote normally, then it's going to like focus and like cluster around certain things. Again, I'm, I'm yeah. being super big. I'm, I'm trying to come up with a metaphor and I just can't come up with like a politically correct metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Everything I come up with, I'm like, no, that'll that'll get fun problems canceled. As well. <laughs> no, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. I'm just going to leave it there because I, again, I'm not an expert and this gets way past my pay grade really fast. What you're saying is that humans are slugs, basically. Yeah, exactly. Only atypical <laughs> brains are slugs. <laughs> oh, cancel! <laughs> no, obviously, obviously not. I, I feel like I should point out you and I both uh, identify as atypical in, in many ways. <laughs> yes. So one thing he wanted to point out too is that there's some things that sort of get shortcutted for, for the dopamine. So it's not always surprise. It's not always going to be all the things that we talked about, his super obvious examples are food and sex, which are things that our brain is basically hardwired to like shortcut to always deliver us dopamine. Right. If you eat junk food every day, the junk food's still going to taste good. Your brain is still going to enjoy the junk food, right? Right. You, you don't burn out on, on junk food. Exactly. So those were the caveats. That's not too bad at all. Yeah, no, I was very pleasantly surprised. So let's get into a new batch for him to correct. <laughs> okay, let's do it. And I have been forewarned that um, that one of these chemicals is overblown. We'll cross over to when we come to it. I want to start off with serotonin. Peter, what do you know about serotonin? She was elected as one of the Supreme Court justices in 1964, but I think her term ended early. It was, it was kind of controversial. I was wondering how you're going to spin this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think I know anything about serotonin. I have some friends who <laughs> took them a long time to learn that they have to ask me questions twice because like... They would ask me a question, I'd give a dumb answer and they wouldn't ask again. And then like a month later, I'd be like, I really want to know that. You never told me. I was like, oh, didn't I? Why, why did I tell you? They're like, well, I asked you, you gave a dumb answer. I'm like, yeah, you got to ask the second time. <laughs> you just got to, you got to, you know, get past that and ask, ask a second time. Then, then you'll get full information. That's why you're such a joy to interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not painful at all. Uh, I don't think I know anything about serotonin. I'm, I'm racking my brain. No worries. So it's another one of the feel-good chemicals. Again, that's what we're focusing on with the series. The key thing to know about serotonin is it has to so do is with- Is that the love chemical? No, you're thinking oxytocin. Ah, I am too. Oh, spoilers. Now I can't ask you about that. Well, you can still give you the dumb answer. <laughs> oh, um, I will. I will. Believe me. So serotonin is about social status. It's something that uh, mammals get because they're pack animals. I think that it's less common in animals that don't have that sort of hierarchy. Yeah, exactly. Things that will trigger it are things like a promotion at work, getting together with a new partner, praise for doing a good job, anything where it's like you in relation to other people, you are doing well. And so this is often why people will put other people down because then comparatively you're doing better and people can be desperate for their serotonin. That's one of the ways it can act out. You did a really good job of explaining that. Thank you. I was giving you some serotonin. <laughs> oh, I... Oh. <laughs> you Also, you did do a good job of explaining it, but I just wanted to really like... Now you just released some cortisol. <laughs> that's not a feel-good chemical. I'm going to explain this using the Jungle Book. Okay. Do you remember how the King of the Swingers song goes? The Jungle VIP? Yeah. I'm the King of the Swingers, yeah, the Jungle VIP. I want to walk like you, talk like you, gooby-doo. I want to be like you, an ape like me, he, he can learn to be human too. <laughs> Before I go into it, do you want to explain why that relates to serotonin? Uh, is it a hierarchical thing? Is he trying to like increase his, his status in the world by going from one species to another? 
Yes. So I'm going to read Not Sing because I'm the worst singer in the world, I'm pretty sure. the <laughs> A few lines from the song that really illustrate serotonin just perfectly. Now I'm the king of the swingers, the jungle VIP. I've reached the top and had to, and stop. Had to stop. And that's what's, that's bothering, what's bothering me. me. <laughs> I want to be a man-man cup and stroll right into town and be just like the other men. I'm tired of monkeying around. That just perfectly encapsulates this. It's like dopamine. It metabolizes quickly. You move up in the social hierarchy. You feel good. It goes away. You need to get that hit again. So this so this monkey here has reached the top. He's at the absolute pinnacle. And he can't get that serotonin hit anymore. It felt great on the way up. And now he's hit the cap. So now he's trying to find a new way to get serotonin. He's trying to leave the small pond where he's the big fish. And he wants to you know, keep moving up in the world. So if you were the president of the United States, it would feel good to become the president initially. But even then, you're at the top of your game. The brain isn't wired to be satisfied with that. The brain is like, okay, now how do we move past this? And you would actually be very dissatisfied with that unless you could find some other way to get serotonin. In terms of metabolizing quickly, the thing that I always think of in these matters is Portal 2. Hmm. Uh, so P- Portal is about an AI who's trying to basically like run a human through tests. And Portal 2, a different AI, takes the position of like running through tests he runs the player character through a test and basically like wails in pleasure about how good it feels <laughs> and then runs her through a second test. She's like, oh, that, that that wasn't as good. And then by the third test, he's feeling nothing. And he's just like trying to chase the dragon, you know, trying to chase that high. Mm-hmm. The dopamine uh, really like he burned through that so quickly. It just metabolized so quickly that he's got to escalate things. Yeah, that's a good example, actually. And this is exactly like the, if you ever heard the term keeping up with the Joneses, where it's like, oh, your neighbor right. got something nice. And then you feel the obligation to also get something nice and like, you don't want to like get behind them. Yeah. One way we can evoke this while playing board games is giving players hero moments where the other players are thankful for something that they did. So of course this works well in co-op games where it's like, I play the defend card and that blocks the damage going to you. I go to a city and cure all the pandemic and, and like stop a breakout from coming up. Exactly. Especially in pandemic, that's a great example with the widely asymmetric player powers. Cause it's like, I'm going to go over here and clear one cube. And it's like, yeah, I didn't do much. And then I see you go over and you're the medic. You clear off a whole whack of cubes. And then I'm like, wow, that was awesome. Great job, Peter. And then on my next turn, I cure a disease. And you're like, whoa, how do you do that so easily? Great job, you. And it's just a bunch of compliments that we get to give each other. Would I be correct in, in saying that this is probably a big driver for you particularly? Yes, huge, huge. Yeah, because you're, you're a much more social gamer than I am. And I, I don't like co-ops. So just immediately off the bat, like as a human, I probably get this uh, serotonin from somewhere, but it's definitely not from playing games. Well, and, and people have different like amounts that your body produces and metabolizes in different ways and everything. So like some people need more of one than the other. I know that I am dopamine deficient. And I think that I'm also serotonin deficient. We were talking a while back about... What type of designer we are? Are we the artist or the person who wants to make money or the rock star? I'm the rock star. I like positive feedback. I like attention. I'm the same way. Like I get fan mail from various careers and it's it's the highlight of my day every time. And like that time you killed me every day, I wake up and the first thing I do is I just do a Google search for it and just see like who's discussed it in the last 24 hours. And so that that's a big like serotonin source for me because I just, I love seeing people enjoy this thing that I've made and, and saying nice things about it and, you know, having a good time. I just tend not to get it from games. It's interesting. Like, huh. I, I don't know if that's because I, I get it from so many other places or because I'm very confident in myself. I've never been one to be like, I'll play a game to feel good about myself. Like I like solving puzzles in games. That's what I enjoy doing. I don't care if I win or not. I care if I beat my previous score. Right, but uh, I don't think this is a serotonin thing, but I think like the thing that drives you is the dopamine because you're like, oh, I did this clever thing. I get to feel yeah. special what I did, right? 
Yeah, Barbara, as you rocketed to the top eight games list because it's just like a pure source of that nonstop for 173 levels. And this is useful not just for like personal self-reflection for people being able to say like, oh, this is the type of gamer that I am. But also it's an easy way to like use a litmus test. If you have a co-op game and it looks like it's not generating feel goods between the players, people aren't really connecting with it. Check and see, like, am I giving people the opportunity to congratulate each other, right? Yeah, I, th- I think hero moments was a really good term. It's, it's something that I've never put into a game that I can think of. And because I want my games to be puzzles I can solve, I always try to start everyone out in exactly even playing field. Mm-hmm. Um, which is good for my particular style of design, but it means that there are no hero moments. Right. And again, not every game needs them. No, no, of course. I'm not saying this is a bad thing about my games, but it is an aspect that I hadn't considered that now I will more actively explore, Mm -hmm. especially because not all of my games are made exactly for me. Sometimes when I'm making a game, it's because I want to, I want to make something that isn't necessarily going to be my favorite game, but I know that I can design an interesting thing in that space. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Another way that you can release serotonin is outside of co-op games is uh, party games. Mm. All right, let's take a simple example. Cards Against Humanity. You play the two-card combination. Everyone laughs around the table. They're like, wow, that was a great one. That was so good. Here's a point. You get to feel really good because you're like, you're rewarded extrinsically from the, the victory point that you got. But you also are rewarded because everyone laughed and said, wow, that was a funny joke. Great job on you. Yeah. And, and that's a famous example of a game where no one cares about the point system. Mm-hmm. The point system reinforces the serotonin that you're getting. But the serotonin is so powerful that it doesn't matter. <laughs> the points don't matter because the serotonin reward is so strong. Mm-hmm. Other ways that you can do this, escape room games, where you have different types of puzzles that need to be solved. Yeah, I I, I do like those. It's funny, I don't like co-ops, but I love me an escape room. Right, and you can have like, here's the really like crunchy Sudoku mathy puzzle over here. And then everyone around the room is like, ugh. And one person goes, this is my moment. Yeah. I've heard of a bunch of times from Shane McDowell of of times that she's been playtesting a game. And you'll have someone who they're like, I don't like puzzles. I don't like this or whatever. This really isn't my thing. But you know what? There's those Where's Wallow puzzles. So you can search around the room and find a thing and everyone's like, oh, I missed that. Great job. Yeah. If you can have a wide variety of these things that require different skill sets, you can make it so that everyone gets to have these hero moments, even if it's not a fully cooperative experience in the same way. It's funny because uh, I played one of the Exit the Games the other day with a group of friends and I definitely like felt those moments and especially because these are people who I only just know. So I wanted to impress them more than like my regular gaming group or anything like that. But there was definitely moments where I solved something that no one else could see. And I just felt so good and so clever. And they were all like, wow, I wouldn't have seen that. And then on the flip side, there were many times when I was like, oh my God, I never would have gotten there. Well done. Like, that's great. And so like those exit rooms, like I don't get that from a co-op which is interesting because like theoretically it would be exactly the same. But with a co-op, I think because all the co-ops I've played have been like designed to be played again and again and again and again, I would never play a co-op more than like three times, I don't think. Because after the third time, I'm like, oh, it's the thing again, the thing again that we just did. I just get no serotonin out of impressing people by spotting a combination that anyone who's playing that thing could have spotted. Even though it's exactly the same with like escape rooms, for some reason in my mind, it just works differently. Isn't that funny? That's so interesting because with me, I'm so far the opposite. Yeah, I've got a group that I play video games with that we started after uh, the pandemic and we couldn't see each other in real life. And we've been like bouncing around from game to game. Basically, all I was looking for were games with really, really high amounts of teamwork because I didn't care about winning. I didn't care about the, the gameplay as much. What I cared about was games that really encouraged us 
to communicate and work well together. So we had those moments that made me feel good where I get to do that big thing that helps out the teammate and I have to rely on them. And th like, that's the thing that really works for me. You know what it is? I think I've just cracked it. Yeah. It's literal versus lateral thinking. Yeah. Every published co-op game is all literal thinking. Sometimes you'll get occasional moments of like, oh, that's cool. But once you've done it once, then that's just now a part of the game. Like you'll never have to think about that again. For people who may have missed our previous terminology episodes, linear thinking is basically logical, structured, straightforward. Puzzle solving. Yeah. And lateral thinking is like thinking outside the box. It's creative thinking. It's artistic. Yeah. And escape room boxes like exit the game, etc. They lean heavily on lateral thinking. They lean heavily on making those big jumps. And you can't do that in a published co-op game. Like you can have occasional like moments like that. But if you play the same characters in the same situation again, then that's no longer lateral thinking. That's just part of it. And so to go back to Barbara's you, I know I talk about the show way too much considering it's not a video game <laughs> podcast, but like that game is 172 levels of lateral thinking after lateral thinking after lateral thinking. Like every new concept they introduce, the first five levels are just like, how can you use this in ways that you've never thought of before? And it blows my mind every time. So co-op games are puzzles. They're very literal puzzles. I love puzzles. I don't know why other people are there. <laughs> if you all went away, I can solve this puzzle. And I play a lot of co-ops solo on my iPad. Whereas an escape room, I couldn't solve by myself. Like I need those other people. Or in the case of co-op, sometimes I'm not the best at solving it, in which case, why am I there? It just annoys me in either direction. Whereas escape rooms, you need those different minds pouring over it. Cracking the Cryptic are a um, YouTube channel who solves Sudoku puzzles who I've worked with and published a book with. And they started doing Barbara's You on the channel. And it was so interesting because they very rarely got stuck because there were two people looking at it. Every time I got stuck, it was something really obvious that I should have seen, but I was just too locked in. Whereas if a second person had been solving it with them, I would immediately like have jumped the level. They stopped doing it because they feel like they got stuck too often, which I think is funny because they're used to like being the, the experts of this. And sometimes they would get stuck on a level for up to five minutes. And I'm like, oh boy, I got stuck on a level for seven hours once. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, ha having that second person is vital. Like I couldn't solve escape room by myself because mm -hmm. it requires different points of view and, and it's all lateral thinking. So I definitely get the serotonin from lateral thinking, but not at all from literal thinking. Zero percent. For me, what makes co-op games interesting is the bouncing back and forth off people. Like I would never play a solo board game in my life. I have no interest in it, but I would even play a solo board game cooperatively with someone just to like talk things through. Yeah. With Brent, who we mentioned a few times earlier, we played Pandemic Legacy through together. And because we're at a similar skill level, it was a ton of fun where we're always just bouncing ideas off of each other. But I completely understand why it doesn't work for you, for sure. Yeah. Whereas I hate playing co-ops, as, as I famously said many times. I'll play test them because I at least get some pleasure out of that. Maybe that's my serotonin, being able to be like, here's my thoughts on this and have people be like, those are good thoughts. Whereas I've played hundreds of hours of Sentinels of the Multiverse on my iPad. Hundreds of hours. Probably the best I ever felt from my game design was the time that I playtested something of yours. I mentioned this on the podcast, I think, but I playtested a couple of games of yours in a row. And every time you're like, wow, that was so insightful. And then we went and playtested a game after I played like three years in a row. And you're like, I'm so excited to see your thoughts on this one. Oh, that's so good. Hey, anything else for serotonin? Oh, lots. Other ways that we can reinforce it is positive player interaction. So things like in Brass Birmingham, I build a coal plant. There's a whole bunch of coal on it. You can use the coal for free. It doesn't cost you anything. And if you use all the coal, now I get a bonus. Anno 1800 has my favorite positive player interaction of all time. I really love it. What's that? So it's a tech tree game, pure tech tree. Everyone's just building their own tech trees. 
However, if you ever want to use a tech that you don't have, you can just pay someone else to use theirs. Mm. So everyone generates these little, they're called trade tokens, and you generate, let's say, two to 10 per turn, depending on what you've built so far. If I want to use your third level technology, I have to pay three trade tokens and you get one gold. And you can't deny permission or anything like that. So I'm looking around being like, okay, I really want to get this tech, but I'm missing these two prerequisites. Oh, fortunately, AJ has it and also Brent has it. You will get one gold. So you're not sitting there being like, ah, now I've got trade tokens and I can go back and forth. And similarly, when you are building a tech, if you're like, oh, no one else has got this tech. If I build this really early, then I'll be getting a bunch of gold from it. It's just a really good, like it's a competitive game, purely competitive, but that positive player interaction is really sharp. I bought the game specifically because I like that so much. (laughs) One of my favorites is a game called Turia, which is a game that I don't like. It's kind of a beautiful train wreck. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to bag on it, but on your turn, you take an action and anyone who wants to do that action gives you their token and they get to take that same action. So you're incentivized to be like, oh, the group wants to do this. I want to do this thing over here. But if I do this, I'll get three extra turns, basically. Yeah. But the only thing that it can do is you can give it back to somebody else to then take a turn. So it's constantly bouncing off of each other. It's technically worker movement, where it's like everyone controls one worker. So if I move on to take the action, you can't then take that same action. Yeah. So you're like, well, I have to pay them or I'm not going to get this action for a while. And of course, one of my favorites, Root, the uh, the Riverfolk expansion. Yeah, I was going to say, the, the Riverfolk was my first thought too. Ah, so good. So the Riverfolk are one of the factions in Root, which is a very asymmetric game. And the way they work is on their turn, they get to set prices for various services. So they can use special routes on the map. They've got their own soldiers. And they've got a hand of cards that everyone can see at all times. And they can set prices for each of those things. So if on your turn, you want to use the Secret Passage... You can pay me the amount that I chose and you get to take that route. If you want to use my soldiers as mercenaries, you can pay me and use my soldiers as if they were more of your soldiers. And if you wanted to buy a card straight in my hand, you can. And so it's a very feel good thing because everyone's really happy that you're there. They're like, great, there's this thing I want. I'm happy to pay you. It just feels fantastic. It's one of my favorites ever. One thing I want to point out in terms of how not to use serotonin, this is a bit of an edge case, but in Everdell, actually, you've got those building cards that other people can use on their turns. And I actually think that those are used a little suboptimally. They're fine, but I think that they could be done better. So they're not going to trigger too much serotonin because you don't really get a whole lot out of it on either end of the trade. And oftentimes you wanted to go to your own spot and then you get blocked from it. So it can actually be a negative thing. Like with your example, I don't lose my tech if someone else uses it in NO. It's just positive feelings to it. Whereas this one, they take the more like strategic approach of having a cost benefit going on there, but they remove a bit of the feel good on top of feel good. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't think it's a criticism of the game. It's like the classic thing, like when is a game done? When the feedback is not, here's how to make it better, just here's how to make it different. (laughs) For sure, yeah. Serotonin can also be released when you win a game. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. As a social status thing, like, oh yeah, I did better than everybody else there. But it can also be released if you did better than you thought you did. If you're like, oh, wow, that's pretty close. Remember, serotonin's in relation to other people. If you score 160 and I score 140, even if I come in last place, I'm like, oh, it's not so bad. Right. It can still feel good, which is one of the benefits of point salad game design. Meaning if you do anything and it gives you points, everyone's going to end with relatively close scores. The gulf between them looks a lot smaller than it is. And that can be very beneficial to people, especially more casual people who don't sort of realize. Yeah. I played a prototype last night and I've played this a few times. It's a design that Jeff Fraser is a frequent co-designer and friend of the podcast is working on. And I felt through the whole game that I was just nailing it. I was like, I've worked out the puzzle of this game. I'm taking actions in an optimal order. I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. 
we tallied up the scores at the end and and jeff even said peter you rocked it i expect that you've like won this we added it all up and he was at like maybe 150 and there was someone at 120 these, these numbers aren't right it was it was less than this but for the sake of the conversation uh he was at 150 there was someone at like 140 someone at 125 and then i was at 105 and i was just like what happened and <laughs> i wasn't upset that i lost because i i say this to people struggle to believe it i genuinely don't care if i win or lose i was just concerned about the puzzle of it because i was like i i i thought i solved this puzzle and jeff thought i solved this puzzle and everyone at the table thought i solved this puzzle and i don't care that everyone thought that it's just confusing to me that i solved this puzzle without actually getting rewarded for it turns out i'd misunderstood the scoring and then i ended up at like 170 and i was like oh, oh okay that makes sense <laughs> and i didn't have a moment of like haha take that suckers i won a because it's a play test and no one cares and b because i really don't care about that but it was just this like oh thank goodness okay the world makes sense again <laughs> <laughs> One genre that I think nails the serotonin better than any other. Can you guess what it is? Ooh, let me guess. Social deduction? Nope. It wouldn't be area control. We've discussed co-ops, so I'm guessing you're not going to go back to co-ops. Yeah, co-ops might be the best, but this is one that's very close. Take that? Nope. What is it? Trivia games. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of like, oh man, I can't stand trivia games. <laughs> oh, me neither. I... Oh, <laughs> Maybe because I don't give a crap about serotonin. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't hurt. Uh, but yeah, like the whole idea is I knew this thing. Nobody else did. Everyone's like, whoa, I can't believe you knew that obscure thing, you genius. Yeah. <laughs> As a puzzle solver, I'm like, well, that's not fair. I had no way of knowing it. You had to like know it or not. I can totally see what you're saying. Yeah, that makes sense. One thing to note is that a chemical that we're not talking about today is cortisol, which is like the stress hormone. If you feel like you're in danger, if you're feeling threatened. It's the flight or flight response yeah. chemical. That's the negative feeling. And to avoid cortisol, which is like the punishment, it's like the opposite of getting serotonin in a lot of ways, is don't allow players to let each other down. So we just talked about creating hero moments. Don't create moments where I'm going to look over at my friend's board and say, you idiot, why didn't you do that? Now we're screwed. Right. So as a simple example, in Pandemic, technically the hand of cards are hidden, which means that you're not going to be able to see, oh, you didn't play that card, which would have been the thing that saves us. And so in a lot of ways, you have that sort of buffer and people probably aren't going to track and say, oh, wait, three rounds ago, couldn't you have played that card that would have been useful? Right. I know we're not diving into cortisol super deep, but is that one that's considered cathartic? Like, like horror movies? Do horror movies produce cortisol? I believe so. I was 99% researching just the positive chemicals, but I believe that the catharsis there is basically you get the chemicals that you never get otherwise in a safe space. So like cortisol is right. not a pleasant thing, but in this safe context, the person who lives an undangerous life wants to experience a little bit of danger. Yeah, a very modern life. <laughs> Same exact thing with roller coasters. It's excitement. Yeah. It's like, whoa, I'm falling really fast. This is really dangerous, but it's not really. What about something like like Werewolf or a social deduction game or even Twilight Struggle where you're sitting there stressed out of your mind? <laughs> right. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great example. Again, I didn't do too much research on this, so I don't want to dip too far into this because I, I worry that I might say you, something. You'll get an angry email from your friend? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to bridge the gap a little bit between the social one and what we already talked about is the feel-good one, oxytocin, with testosterone, weirdly. Oh, it's very relevant to me right now. <laughs> yeah. So this isn't one that I had researched initially, but my friend sent me a link on this and it was really interesting. What do you think testosterone does? Like just the first thing that comes to mind, what's the, what's the number one thing that it would do? Uh, sperm. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of people think 
testosterone is aggression. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. Like like steroids. People equate it with steroids. I don't because I'm actually currently on testosterone treatment and I uh, have not been feeling any, any anger <laughs> issues or anything like that. I'm really curious because you have first-hand experience with this. The video that I was sent where it was discussing testosterone versus oxytocin, they said that testosterone doesn't directly generate aggression, but it does exaggerate pre-existing social patterns. Let's say you've got the strongest monkey, monkey A. Then you have a second strongest monkey, monkey B. Then you have a weak monkey, monkey C. If you give B a whole bunch of testosterone, yeah, it's probably going to fight and beat up the weaker one C, but it's not just going to get into fights with anyone. It's not like blind to that. What it's trying to do is protect its social status. Oh, interesting. When your status is challenged, it makes you want to do what will protect it. And so he said specifically, you give a whole bunch of like super peaceful monks testosterone, they're going to do a whole bunch of random acts of goodness for people because the social status for them is doing good things to other people, which is really interesting and something I hadn't heard before. Yeah, uh, just brief backstory for those who haven't been following my medical adventure, because why would you? In September of last year, I was diagnosed with low testosterone. I have just naturally low testosterone, have my whole life, but basically a bunch of stress and, and undersleeping triggered it to start having real tangible effects on my life. So I was sleeping up to 15 hours a day. I was depressed. I was gaining weight. I was lethargic all the time. My brain was foggy. AJ said that he could tell the difference between when I was in that state and when I went on testosterone treatment and kind of came back to normal from our podcast recording or like from the editing process. <laughs> I don't remember like chunks of that period because I was just so low for a while and I didn't know what was happening. It was really scary. I'll give you the numbers, actually. The base rate for a man my age is something like 200. I don't know what it's a unit of. It's like testosterones per person. <laughs> 200 testosterones per person. I was at something like 205. Sorry, sorry, not the base rate, the low, the low end of normal. It goes from 200 to 800 is the normal range. And I was like 205. So they're like technically normal, but you've been suffering all of these things. Um... And so I went on testosterone treatment and now my testosterone is 956. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I was like, isn't that above normal? I'm like, yep, that's where we want you. We want you above the normal range so that you definitely, definitely don't dip down. Hmm. So every week I take a $50 testosterone injection. Very expensive. Go America. As a result, I have my energy back and oh my goodness, it's a game changer. I was literally like sleeping eight to 10 hours, waking up for three hours, napping for three hours, waking up for a few hours, sleeping another 10 to 15 hours. Like <laughs> I was getting nothing done. It was a really rough time. So since then, I can tell you, I've not felt more aggressive. <laughs> uh, what, what was the question? One of the effects of testosterone, when challenged, it makes you do whatever you need to, to maintain your social status. So if you feel like your social status is being challenged, you're going to do whatever thing you think is going to correct that. And the reason why that often expresses itself in aggression is because our society, generally speaking, rewards aggression. So like if you think about the stereotypical Karen, quote unquote, who's like goes to a fast food place and just screams at the staff, generally what's Karen going to get? She's going to get what she wants because people are going right. to not want to deal with it, want to defuse the situation. If you're in a lot of other situations, like being the bully, being a really aggressive is going to actually get you what you want. Our society rewards it. And so that's often why testosterone can be conflated with causing aggression when really what it's doing is my stats is being challenged from one way or another, and I'm going to overreact in that. So I'll tell you, as soon as I started feeling better, I started designing board games. So I've been designing a lot of board games. Uh, I don't know if that's due to directly testosterone or just I have my energy back. I want to go back to what I'm good at. Designing board games and recording podcasts is what I've been spending my time <laughs> doing. So <laughs> I guess that's what I do when I feel my social status is threatened. 
So we're going to move into oxytocin. I'm going to mention in a minute why this sort of relates to testosterone. So oxytocin, uh, what do you know of it? Make your joke and then uh, then we'll move on. <laughs> it's, it's the love chemical. It's the love chemical for love. But what's the pun? Oh, uh, oxytocin is what's causing the opioid problem in most of middle America. It's really horrible. There we uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's known as the love hormone. It's triggered by comfort, trust, physical affection. Interestingly, it improves your emotional intelligence. Massive amounts are released from breastfeeding and lovemaking. Very common board game related activities. <laughs> So what's interesting is that's what people <laughs> directly think it does. And it does do those things, but only in a specific context. What oxytocin does is it exaggerates the divide between the us and the them. Oh, tribalism. Right? Another of my favorite topics. <laughs> so it'll make you feel closer to that partner that you're with or your child or your friends or whoever. But it also is going to make you further distance yourself from other people. There was an interesting experiment where they gave people an extra dose of oxytocin and then had them do the trolley problem. Oh, wow. But what they did was they chose different names for the trolley problem person. So in uh, in some studies, they gave them similar names. I think it was like a Swedish study. So in some cases, they gave them a Swedish name. And then in the other cases, they gave them German names. And so what they found was when it's the similar name, they would not throw the person on the tracks. And when it was someone with a different name, they just shuck them. <laughs> you know? Interesting. And uh, I assume it was magnified compared to the, the control group who didn't get the extra oxy. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. And so oxytocin released when you feel accepted in the group and it's released when you... Uh, when you... It's the community chemical. Yes. It triggers when you physically touch people. When you're relying on other people and your trust is rewarded, that will release oxytocin. So obviously, again, this is this has a lot of overlap with serotonin. This is why they're in the same episode. Cooperative games are going to help with that. But what's interesting is think of how few games actually encourage physical touch. And I mean, granted, now is the best time to be bringing that up. Right. And also just in general, like you do want to be careful with these types of things with the social contract. You don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. Or making people feel like they have to touch other people to play the game. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think that there are safer ways that we could find to be able to engage yeah. in this. Well, it's interesting because there's a lot of team bonding exercises that do have people touch. Yeah. So the, the classic one that we probably all did in primary school is, you know, everyone pick another person in the room, hold one hand with that person. And then the person who chose you hold the other hand and then try to un untangle yourself from the knot kind of thing. Right. Or the, the trust fall thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Trust fall. The, the untangling thing is interesting because it's so physical because you often have people like climbing over each other. And uh, I did an improv intensive, uh, improvised theater intensive in Chicago in 2015. Mm -hmm. And one of the exercises was for like, you, you know, we had a group of eight and they were trying to increase trust among the group. And one thing was just like, you know, seven people carry one person, literally just like carry them from one end of the room to the other, something like that. We just rotated. One woman in our group wouldn't do it. She felt like she was too fat and that we were going to drop her and that she was going to be judged, all this kind of stuff. And she just refused to participate. And obviously no one made her participate. But I remember thinking like, oh, that really sucks. Not only for her, because she obviously feels very self-conscious about her weight, etc. Like, it would have been fine. I'm fully confident. And no one doing this was like, yeah, probably a good idea. But also that she didn't get to have that extra like... Connection. Connection. Yeah, exactly. That's always really stuck with me. Yeah, that's a real shame. It's a tough spot. And so, sorry. Uh, and so you can't put that in a published box because the one person who feels like that is going to then be like, oh, I don't want to play this game. <laughs> right. Well, I, th I think there are some safe ways to do it. The classic example is Twister, right? But we don't need to go that right. far. Yeah. If you had just a game where it's like, imagine a dexterity game, imagine Jenga, except you have to have your arm like over somebody else's and they have to have your arm under you and you're playing at the same time. That 
isn't too intimate, I don't think. I think that most people would feel comfortable with doing something like that. And that is a way to generate trust and to make people a little more comfortable and, and, and to sort of break the ice a little bit as well. Yeah. I think that looking for ways like that to release oxytocin could be a safe and healthy way to get a feel that most games don't. So does the in-group, out-group thing, out group thing, does that itself release oxytocin or is that just magnified by oxytocin? It's released primarily through touch, but secondarily through like moments of trust with other people. With the trust fault, it's not 100% the physical touching of the catching. Part of it is the, I am putting my trust in you and now I fall and then you caught me. That's part of what releases it. Because yeah, I'm thinking social deduction. If I trust another player and we go on the mission together and we succeed... Does that generate oxytocin? I would think so, yes. I think a bigger release of it would be less mechanical and more outside the game. So as an example, that's a mechanical way where it's like, I trusted that you'd play the card, right? But imagine a party game, like a UG tech, right? Where you're pretending to be a cave person and you're slapping this like foam mallet down to communicate with people. You have to be really silly and really vulnerable to be able to do that. If you put yourself in that spot and people like aren't making fun of you and they're like laughing along with you and stuff, being able to relax and be vulnerable and trust yourself with them, gotcha. that that would release it for sure. So it's it's less about moments of trust and more about an environment of trust is what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's about building that group. How does um, Inhuman Conditions end? What's the end? Is that the shaking hands? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes. So as long as someone doesn't become a violent robot and murder you, yes, you shake hands. Right. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. Inhuman Conditions, the best game ever. It just keeps on giving. <laughs> Yeah, games that have a lot of player interaction with a lot of communication and allow you to do silly things with each other and allow you to physically touch, those are all different ways of generating oxytocin. But before I end the sentence there, it has been brought to my attention that oxytocin has been a bit overblown. Oh, this is that one. Yeah, so a lot of people will talk about like, oh, oxytocin, it's this magical thing, you know, like you're gonna be connected forever. And it's like, even the things that generate tons of oxytocin, you know, uh, sex or um, or breastfeeding. Cuddling on the couch watching an entire series of The Office. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like those generate enormous amounts of oxytocin. But you know what? People still get divorces. People still like have estranged relationships with their children. Don't think of it as like this miracle thing. And particularly not in the small doses that we're dealing with here. Like these are all ways to improve things and, and to feel good and to generate this. But just don't think that it's like you're going to shake hands and all of a sudden everyone at the table is going to be like, whoa, we're best friends. Right. <laughs> gotcha. All right. That's all my notes there. Do you have uh, any questions or anything you want to bring around to how they can connect to games? Yeah. So we did dopamine oxytocin, serotonin, was there another one? And endorphins, which have very little bearing on this, yes. Right. Did we talk about endorphins last time? We didn't talk about it this time. We we? did talk about endorphins last time, yeah. It was just so quick. (laughs) Uh, Endorphins are typically released in extreme stress, in pain, uh, exercise, sex, but smaller amounts are released through things like belly laughs, even just like if you're playing like, um, what's that game? Happy Salmon, you run around the table. That might actually generate a little bit of endorphins. Gotcha. The amount is very small. So similarly, it doesn't have much place in the conversation with board games. I did think it was worth bringing up, but it's not something to make a big deal about. Gotcha. Right. So I, I guess my follow-up question is, do you think, and this is just your just going to be an opinion, do you think like ev- every good moment from a board game is directly linked to these? Is that why you brought it up? I would say that the big moments are. All the best moments are. I'll give you an example from Scallywags. Scallywags is my game where you have a bunch of hidden tiles and you're trying to figure out which ones are traps and which ones are treasures. You take turns revealing them and then you're like, okay, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to push my luck and I'm going to stop and collect all of these resources. But early on, it was very clear that the game 
was working fine, but didn't have that big excitement. What was missing? Well, there wasn't enough dopamine. There was the anticipation, but there wasn't the big payoff. And so I introduced this mechanic, the cannon, where you get to shoot the next one. And if it's a bad trap, it gets blown up. When you do that, it's a huge exciting moment because you're like, yes, I, I called you out. I get rewarded for it. It immediately improved the game dramatically, so much so that I dramatically rebalanced the game to focus on making those big moments happen a lot, especially like if you miss, if you mess up and you shoot the big treasure pile. And so I want to add those spiky moments in. All right, so let's talk about Feast for Odin. Sure. So you played Feast for Odin for the first time the other day. We played it on Board Game Arena, which is my first time playing anything on Board Game Arena. I was very impressed. Really good interface. As has been mentioned countless times, Feast for Odin and Istanbul are my two favorite games of all time. I just love them. I just think they're two perfect designs. TWO perfect designs, not too perfect. <laughs> uh, you said, and I hope, I hope you don't mind me putting words in your mouth, you said that you enjoyed it. You said that it was a well-designed game that you would never play on your own. Just, just not for you. Yeah. So... In terms of chemicals, in terms of just brain chemicals, why do I like it and you don't? Not 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 that you di- dislike it, not that you're disparaging it, but like why why does it tickle my brain and not yours? I'm just going to work through the different angles to this. Yeah, yeah. So no oxytocin, no endorphins. Those just don't come up in this type of a game. It's it's a heavy euro game. Those basically automatically don't apply by definition almost. Yeah. So it's a worker placement tile placement game and it's uh god it masters both of them so you play as a viking clan and it's described on the box as like a viking saga and it really has this epic feel to it it takes place over several rounds every turn you place your vikings on a worker placement board you take certain actions the main thing that you're trying to do is get tiles that you can put on a, on a patchwork style board patchwork was actually spun off uh, off this game to try to cover as much as much of that room as possible in certain intricate puzzly kind of ways so you know you and it's got a bunch of, of mini games it's a very very broad game it's quite shallow in some respects but it's very broad so in the game that we played i focused very intently on hunting in other games I've, I've focused on farming or on exploring or on trading or you know there's, there's all these different ways you can go and this one i focus on hunting and raiding michael chang who's a friend of ours who we played with he focused a lot on forging you focused on getting your income up and there's just all these different ways to play it i really like it because it's uh endlessly replayable it's a heavy euro it's a heavy euro it's like two to two and a half hours and the only interaction is is who's going to take central spaces from the board or who's going to take central tiles or who's going to take central boards from each other so there were three big moments that i enjoyed of a feast for odin the first moment I enjoyed, that's the most like in genre, was a typical use of dopamine where there's a worker placement spot that allows you to upgrade your tiles. So you have a bunch of tiles to try and place on your board and some of the tiles you use to feed your workers, some of the tiles you use to fill up space. And when you upgrade tiles, they get to be more useful in whichever puzzle it is. And the further you upgrade them, the better and better they get. And there was your favorite action space. You get to upgrade all of one color as long as they're different kinds of things. So you could have like fished or farmed or whatever. You can upgrade as many of those as you want to. In a single action, which is huge. That's like, mm-hmm. you can you can take the equivalent of like 10 actions in a single space if you've set everything up right. But it does take a lot of work to set up. And it's yeah. a worker placement game. Someone else could take that from you. Uh, one of my favorite moments was when I went there and I, and I triggered that huge thing and I felt really smart and clever. So that's the like standard thing that is no surprise to anyone. But I don't, I just don't care about that kind of thing that much. That's not the type of chemical that helps me as much. That type of dopamine didn't release enough for me because it was like one big moment after a bunch of like small things that weren't that exciting. I love that. that that's, I'm all about that. <laughs> I get in trouble with my designs because it's like generally a lot of fiddly stuff to do one big thing. And people are like, Peter, this is too much fiddly stuff and not enough big things. (laughs) 
So the two other moments, because of the, the turn order, I went after our friend Michael and Michael kept doing moves that I was trying to capitalize on. And so Michael would like do a thing that set me up and I got to steal it. And there's my serotonin. I get to think, oh, I'm more clever than Michael. And like he had his own reasons for doing this stuff. I'm not trying to say like he was dumb or anything, but it made me feel clever that I'm like, I'm taking advantage of the thing that he did. He set me up for this thing. And I was very actively not trying to set Peter up for moves. And so that was a moment that I really enjoyed. There was the serotonin for me because that's the thing that I really like. And then at the end of the game, I normally don't care about winning games. But this is Peter's favorite game. And I won. <laughs> By like 30 points too. Like you significantly won. <laughs> and this is the type of game that normally I suck at as well. Like this is not my type of game. So that felt really good, again, as a serotonin hit, as being like, oh, wow, I feel really good with that position. And also the dopamine of the big surprise there, because I wasn't expecting to win at all. Even like late game, I had a lot of points. I was like, Pierre's going to catch up with 100 million cool things in the last turn because, you know, he's he's uh, smart and uh, good at this game. I've played this game probably like 40 times. I've played it a lot. <laughs> and so there was the dopamine of the surprise, right? What was my expected reward? I was expecting to like come in distant second, and I came in like a, a pretty solid first so that felt really good um now in terms of like the moment to moment gameplay though that's the thing where it slows me down and I, I don't get those constant hits because it's like yeah i get some resources yeah i put this thing in place but i never felt really paid off for any of my moves even when i'm doing an efficient move that that pays me off decently it's just not the type of chemical that my brain responds to i don't care about that efficiency and the payoffs don't let me work towards them so it's like the payoff to filling up a section of my board is I get slightly more resources. The payoff to filling up the next section of the board is slightly more resources. It's incremental. Right. It's incremental. It's not a huge reward. It is huge mechanically, but it doesn't feel huge to me as a player. And the big thing is it doesn't surprise. I really love being surprised in games. One of the video games in my group that I mentioned earlier this podcast plays is Apex Legends, which is a battle royale game. And there's, you know, loot crates all over the place. And I just beeline it, even in the middle of a firefight, to open a chest that is probably going to have nothing. <laughs> but what if it has something really good? Like like a moth to flame. Did, did you do much hunting in this game? You went whaling a lot, actually, didn't you? I did a decent bit of whaling. I wanted to do a lot more hunting in general, but because you decided that was your hunting game, I ended up doing a lot right. less of that than I wanted to. That's funny, yeah. Had we had this conversation before playing, I probably would have hunted less just so you could hunt more and enjoy the game more. Mm. <laughs> It's all good. I, st I still enjoyed myself. It's an excellent, excellent game. Yeah, no, I, I, I would have been surprised if you were like, yeah, it doesn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, it, it's, I, I think it's a masterpiece. I like it because it's, I think I've mentioned on this podcast many times, replayability is like one of my highest preferences in a game. I, I just want to play a game again and again and again until I die. And th this game has an entire expansion that I've never even touched. It has three, like, the equivalent of today, there would be boxes in the thing. They're just three different decks that I've never even opened the third deck because I just want to, I want to be playing this in 20 years time. I want to play this <laughs> with my son when he's 25 years old, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. And for me, I'm the opposite. I'm like, I just want to try a million things because I'm all about the novelty. I'm all about the surprise dopamine. And so for me, it's like, I would rather play a new game that I'm probably not going to like, but does something interesting than a game that I already know that I like because like, I already played that. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what's interesting. And obviously we're speaking in increments here. The novelty of A Feast for Odin is why I love it so much. Because, oh, yeah, um, yeah. Just like, just like in Agricola, there are occupation cards. And there's, I think, somewhere between 180 and 300 occupation cards. These are the three decks I was talking about. The A deck, the B deck, the C deck. And I've never even opened the C deck because I'm still finding surprises in the B deck. 
So normally when I play, I will look at my occupation cards and build my entire game around those because that will give me an experience of the game that I've never had before. Mm -hmm. And so I'll just be like, oh, I drew a card that in any way benefits farming. Cool. I'm going hardcore on farming using this card as much as possible. Not because I think it'll win, because like I said, I don't I don't care that much about winning, just to like experience this game I love from a slightly different angle and see like how much utility I can get out of this one card. I totally see what you're saying. For me, the surprise is way too incremental. Yeah. I'm the like root level of <laughs> asymmetric, right? Like I want I want big surprises, which by the way, leading into uh, a quick reminder that I'm going to be streaming 25th of February from 7 to 9 p.m. EST. February 2022 for anyone who's listening <laughs> to the archives. <laughs> yep. I'll be streaming Inscription. Inscription is like the legacy game of video games. It is like constantly throwing new puzzles and surprises and yeah i've heard from everyone that i will like this game i just i just don't play many video games which sounds weird but considering how much i know about barbara's you i found barbara's you while i was in the depths of my testosterone deficiency mm, right <laughs> so i had a hundred hours to fill where i couldn't actually like do anything so i was just <laughs> like well this game is my life now i have a lot to say about inscription which obviously i'm saving for the stream it actually didn't quite work for me i'm really interested to talk about why it didn't work for me despite being like tailor-made for me specifically like it should be my favorite game is this being recorded like will i be able to watch it afterwards i'll probably record it yeah yeah cool i probably won't be there live but because uh, i don't like watching streams of games i haven't played but someday i'll play inscription then come back and watch for your thoughts before we wrap so you've explained what didn't work in feast for Odin for you or not not even didn't work but like why it didn't tickle you but why why does it tickle me do you think like what's the difference in our brains here i think part of it is that like dopamine is my jam like i only care about dopamine <laughs> yes and part of it is like you just explained how how it triggers dopamine for you and i just described why it doesn't for me right like the type of surprise i'm looking for it doesn't do it it's still triggering dopamine but it's triggering dopamine for you in like a different way and this goes back to where my friend says brains are very diverse it could trigger dopamine in one person but not another it's just a different type of it right does that make sense yeah i think so it's still surprising you but for me it's not the type of surprise or the degree of surprise that i want i think one thing that it does do is it does give you the anticipation well because it gives you a bunch of those mini goals right and so it's like okay you put like one block on the board cool you completed a goal like almost round one you're guaranteed to do it right and then you keep having that where it's like anticipate the next price anticipate the next price and you keep hitting them as you go so i could totally see that being the the trigger for you where it's like those are the satisfying moments in place as well as the like going to the spot that everybody's undervaluing and like outplaying them and feeling clever because of that i could totally see that yeah it's interesting all right cool so that has been uh brain problems the problems of brain <laughs> We will probably do some follow-up on this in a future episode when your friend listens to it. Hi, friend. Hi. <laughs> I'm Peter, the other guy from the podcast. Hello. So this was, won't be the last you've heard of us, but for now, we're going to move on to that. And maybe even, if we're feeling daring, have some fun. What kind of fun are we going to have? What, what chemical is this releasing, this fun part of the podcast? Oh, that's a good question. So this would definitely be like trust building. So this would be oxytocin. I was thinking that, yeah. It could release serotonin based off of our answers. And I don't think it would be releasing dopamine or endorphins in any way. As the person answering it, I think it does for me. Maybe not for the listener, but I'm like... What is he going to say like that? No, no. Like for me, answering a question is solving a puzzle. Oh. Like, uh, <laughs> if you ask me my top five films, I have to arrange them in the correct order. That's a puzzle. Interesting. Our fun question today, and this one's going to release a lot of chemicals. I, I chose this one pretty specifically. What is the best compliment you've ever received? How are you defining best here? 
Your call. I'm cheating. I'm giving two. I'm giving what I think is the like most flattering compliment and my favorite one that I got. Okay. I'm going to give two on completely different axes. Do it. I'm going to give one, which is the one that had the most impact on my life. Wow. And one, which I think is the funniest, almost eloquently worded. I've got so much dopamine building anticipation for your response here. (laughs) And you'll hear about that next week on Fun (laughs) Problems. So in 2010, I lived on the streets of Melbourne for a month. I was totally fine financially and and had support and all that. I was just like, I want to live on the streets at some point. This is the time that makes the most sense. So I lived as a homeless person for a month, just lived on the streets. And as part of that, I didn't have access to any kind of shaving material. So I grew a beard in that time. And then as soon as I got off the streets, I went to a barber and I got it all cut off. And I was, you know, a clean shaven Peter again. And someone in my life saw a news article that was written about me with a photo of me with a beard and she'd only ever known me without a beard and she was like oh that beard looks really good on you and i was like it does she's like yeah so since then i've had a beard (laughs) which if you know me has been a pretty big impact on my life in many many ways the world was trending towards beards i might have gotten one elsewhere but i've always remembered that moment where she was like hey a beard looks really good on you and i was like oh this girl i know thinks the beard looks good i will grow a beard and i did and then you named your company after it i did yeah that was me being like i don't have a good name like disney (laughs) <laughs> I want to name a company after me without calling it Disney. What do I call it? And eventually I was like, oh, a lot of people are like, oh, Bluebeard, you have it for the company. I'm like, no, the company's named for the Bluebeard. It's, it's the opposite <laughs> way around. Does she know the impact that she's had? She does not, no. Uh, she, she was just someone I worked with when I worked for American Express in Australia. Imagine someday when you really hit it big and she's like, wait a minute, I know that beard. I doubt she'll remember me, honestly. That's this weird shaven person she worked with. <laughs> During the pandemic, I grew up my hair very long because I didn't see my hair cutter. And I went to, at one point, a socially distant party with vaccinated people. And I had uh, my hair done up in a man bun, which is my first time ever wearing it like that. And then I walked in and a girl I'd never met before immediately said, who's the dude with the great hair? Nice. And for context, I can't remember ever being complimented on my physical appearance, like full stop. (laughs) What about when you're a lumberjack? Uh, yeah, you're right. My wife did say I was pretty muscly. Yeah. That was pretty good. I grew up having moderately low self-confidence about my physical appearance specifically. And so that just felt amazing. And and particularly like I've, I've never really liked my hair. And so having someone give me that compliment felt great. Yeah, that's very similar to the beard thing. I'm like, as guys, we don't get complimented that often generally. Mm-hmm. But then like as an awkward nerdy guy, as I was, and I assumed you were too. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> any kind of physical attribute comment is particularly rare. Nowadays, I get a lot of compliments about my beard and clothing because I wear very colorful clothing and it feels feels great. feels nice every time. For the record, I think you're very handsome. Thank you. I think I'm very handsome too. There we go. Compliments all around. So the other one, I don't even know if you'd call this a compliment, but I'm friends with Eric Lang, who's an amazing game designer we've talked about a few times. Uh, I haven't seen him in years, so I don't I don't know if we're still friends. Does, does friendship expire if you don't talk to him during a pandemic? I don't know if that works. If I ask him who's Piercy Hayward and he's like, who? Then <laughs> it has expired. Yeah, I, I, I think he'd remember me. We were hanging out once and he said to me, uh, <laughs> I think we'd been drinking or there's there's a group of people and he was showing off a bit, but he said, Peter, you are a Turing test machine programmed by the devil. Wow. <laughs> Which I, I don't know. I honestly don't even know if that was about me or if he was just being witty generally, but I, I've always held that with me. Uh, for those who don't know, the Turing test is sort of what uh, in human conditions is. It's this idea of like a machine that you fool other people into thinking it's sentient without them knowing that they're in a test. So if, if you can like chat to a machine for 20 minutes then walk away without realizing that you've been chatting to a machine, that's a machine that has passed the Turing test. What an interesting thing to say. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? It's always really, really stuck with me. So when you said best compliment, I was like, well, how do you mean best? Because that <laughs> one qualifies on some weird axis. <laughs> <laughs> so my wife has a bunch of friends who 
only know me through like talking to her and one of them said that i was like a man written by a woman (laughs) i couldn't imagine a better compliment than that especially because like again they only know me through what my wife has directly said so that tells you a lot about how my wife feels about me and i i just was over the moon Okay, so that was fun. Please, everyone, uh, stop having fun. Please remove your fun hats and fun goggles and return to the fun box. No more fun. This is actually the most exciting part of the podcast. Sorry, all of your carefully prepared research and fun question, because we are going to tease the next episode, which I think is the most exciting episode in the history of the show. I think it's the most exciting episode in the history of game design podcasts. Nay, of podcasts. (laughs) Next episode, we have a very special guest. Alex Horn, the creator of Taskmaster. Now, if you don't know Taskmaster, run, do not walk to YouTube, type in Taskmaster and start watching videos. AJ will put in the show notes the very best segment that I used to introduce people to Taskmaster. It is, even before I I met Alex Horn, probably my favorite show of the last five years. It's just incredible on so many levels. I recommend it to everyone in my life. I recommend it to AJ. AJ then proceeded to watch all of it. (laughs) I watched all of it in like one month and there's like 11 seasons. It's so good. What is Taskmaster? Do you want to give us a quick description? Yeah, so Taskmaster is essentially a series of challenges done by comedians over the course of months, and then they review those tasks edited down for television and get graded on how well they accomplish those tasks. It's magnificent. Not not even graded, ranked. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. They're basically like little games, essentially, but They're very open-ended because it's open-ended and because they're comedians, you have a lot of really lateral thinking. Very different approaches to the same task. Yeah. I I love it. I really love it just as a show. And then Alex Horn, the creator and the writer of every task you see on that show, agreed to come on to Fun Problems and do an interview. This is our first three-person episode. We will both be interviewing Alex Horn, just talking about Taskmaster, how he puts the task together, how he considers it a game. Does he think of himself as a game designer, et cetera, et cetera. It's a really fun episode. We've already recorded it. I'm very proud of it. And that'll be the next episode. So definitely check that out. If you haven't watched any, at least watch a little bit of Taskmaster. I think you'll get more out of the episode, just understanding the context, especially the clip that AJ is going to put in the show notes. So that's all for this episode of Brain Problems. We hope that you've enjoyed it. I've been Peter C. Hayward. I've been AJ Brandon. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Fun Problems Pod or reach us via email at funproblemspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend. I'm trying to not be here. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing a very good job of not being disruptive, dear. Thank you. And you and I are different. I could not record a podcast with someone sitting next to me. Couldn't do it. The only thing that helps me focus is that you're more handsome than she is pretty. <laughs> I can dye my hair blue again.